Hi, this is Zach Glazer from Frog God Games. Grab your D20 and get ready for save for half. School games and the modern games inspired by them. Welcome to the Safer App Podcast, a podcast about old school games and the modern games inspired by them. Today we are talking about Mutant Future by Goblinoid Games. I am your host, DM Mike, a mutant plant who is in front of a microphone talking to you even now. <laughs> I am being joined by the android, DM Liz. Initiating self-destruct sequencing. No, don't destruct, <laughs> so, initiate self-destruct. I keep telling you that. <laughs> Manufacturer's protocol dictates I cannot be captured. <laughs> I'm not captured yet. You, you, just hold off on blowing up. I'm going to self-destruct. The the <laughs> mutant animal, DM Corbett, is being assigned to watch the android so she doesn't blow herself up. I'm just going nut gathering. <laughs> <laughs> but they're mutant nuts. Oh, a mutant <laughs> squirrel. That's even better. <laughs> <laughs> squirrel boy. Hey, you took the plant, so I get to climb you now. <laughs> that sounds incredibly rude. <laughs> That's an HR call right there. <laughs> and joining us is DM Jim, the magic user from the f- far past or far future where magic and technology collide, as long as he can throw fireballs. <laughs> Jim may get a little excited this episode. Viewer discretion advised. <laughs> Void were prohibited. And like I said, we're talking about Dan Proctor's Mutant Future. But first, do we have anything we want to talk about? Liz, Uh, why don't we talk about North Texas? Briefly. North Texas. Yes. Well, that was three months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it probably will be by the time this actually gets (laughs) put out for people to listen to. But as of this recording, it was only a couple of weeks ago. And Mike and I were there... We had a great time. We kind of took it easy this year. We did not run any games, and part of that was by choice. But the other part was we were kind of thinking maybe we should, because people were asking Mike all throughout the weekend, you're not running a victorious game? You're not running a victorious game? Yeah, that was surprising. And Mike's thinking, well, maybe I'll run something in open gaming. And then we discovered that while we brought his laptop, we did not bring a power cord to recharge the laptop with. And it had 20% charge in it. So so a game was not happening, even if the spirit was willing. Yep. 
I heard you actually worked your booth and consequently sold a bunch of books. That's what I heard. Yes, because we took it easy. We didn't run a game. And we only played in one game each day, Friday and Saturday. So we spent a lot more time than we normally wind up doing at our table. Just sort of hung out, talked to people, sold some books. Also, you know, ran around the dealer room a little bit, got some swag for ourselves. And we we had a really good time. It was very laid back for us. Including three giant centipede minis. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) I saw a great picture where, like, you guys... A safer half booth was across from Chris Clark's booth next to the independent publishers union booth where a bunch Skeeter of Peter was on our right and Janelle Jakeways was on our left. And then I heard from Darlene her lower lip was out because she got way over in some corner. Yeah, I was really surprised. Um, her usual table was taken over by the long con crowd. So she was um off in the artist alley purgatory. (laughs) Down there with Lloyd. Yes. (laughs) Mike and I were in artist alley purgatory one year with our table. And while it is out of the way and almost nobody knows where you are, which is unfortunate for selling stuff, Lloyd and Jason Brown, all those guys are super fun to hang out with. While it may not have been great for business, it was a fun time us being in that location just for our table mates. And we did get in a couple of games. We got in a 1E game with uh, Karma Samadri. Samadhi. Samadhi, sorry. And I'm probably mispronouncing Karma's name, and I apologize profusely. And then a somewhat similar role-play type version of awful green things from outer space set in the 60s hmm. on a space station over the earth but we're all playing very 60s era characters so that was fun hardly any of us died though so that was kind of surprising it sounded like fun to that part yeah <laughs> yeah i mean everybody had like a couple of characters because we just assumed there'd be a big body count but there wasn't surprisingly yeah. We almost had a situation where there were more characters on the ship than there were seats in the lifeboats for us to escape on. Which, that was fun. Yeah, that, that would have been... there. Some, some terrible choices would have had to have been made if that had occurred, but I guess, luckily, the... The thing, the green things killed off just enough of us that we could all actually just cram ourselves in and it would be okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and people were asking about where Jim was and Corbett. Hey, you didn't see me? Everybody <laughs> missed you guys. Yes. I, I will be there next year for sure, but I got to say, I did the best sales-wise at a con I didn't attend. The independent union booth was going like gangbusters. and Oh, yeah. It was hopping. Honestly, I think our location right next to that booth probably oh. helped us with our sales because <laughs> there were a <laughs> lot of people hanging out over there. And I participated. I ran some virtual games. Yeah. Well, awesome. Because so. Doug asked me to. I did it for the Doug. Yeah. Yeah. Do it for Doug. The Dougster. The Dugginator. So, everybody, if you weren't at North Texas, be there in 2022. All right. Well, unless someone has anything else they'd like to announce, nothing upcoming project-wise? Oh, uh, well, uh, I'm just the worst at this part of it. Uh, Scientific <laughs> Barbarian number three is going to the printers this week. So, Yay! 
Ooh. The funny part is I decided way back when I was working on the Kickstarter, I wanted to deliver in June. And then like anybody that comes to me and wants advice on Kickstarter tips and tricks, the first thing I say is figure out whatever date you're sure you can deliver the book by and then add 30 days to it automatically. Don't even think about it. Just do it. Apparently, even after I issued an update apologizing to the backers that we weren't going to make June delivery, a backer messaged me. My eye wandered over to his pledge and I saw right there in black and white on my own Kickstarter, expected delivery July 2021. So I was back on schedule like that. I'd, take, I'd taken my own advice and then forgot I took it. <laughs> Hooray! Well, better than the other way around. Yeah! It's nice yeah. when you listen to yourself, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you outsmart yourself. That's hard to do. All right, so soon, everybody, Scientific Barbarian, or Cybar, as we cool kids mm -hmm. call it, number three will be available soon. Well, by now, it's already there. This is the future. <laughs> yeah, by the time it's <laughs> Yeah, out. okay. This is the, the time travel episode. And if so, you haven't so... bought a copy, why not? Get out there now. Go get your copy. It's available at the Mud Puppy Games website. <laughs> Run. Don't walk to the website. Yes, if you go to the Desert Fortress, they'll have stacks of them next to the gasoline. You'll have to fight your way in, but you will be there. Worth it. <laughs> Remember, only the last five issues go to the winners of Thunderdome, so better hurry up. All right, well, then we will have a quick pod break and return with Mike and the Mechanics. Into a world without nearly enough quality gamer podcasts, they came. The Grognard Files, a podcast about role-playing games from back in the day. You know they're experts because they speak with British accents. Find them at armchairadventureblog.com, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served. Frogs lay hundreds of millions of eggs every year. What would happen if they all hatched? American International Pictures presents Frogs, the story of the day nature strikes back. What strange sequence of events unleashed such a slithering, slimy tidal wave of fear? Why did these particular people on that particular island face this particular kind of terror? See Frogs, starring Ray Milland, Sam Elliott, Joan Van Ark, Adam Rourke, and Judy Bass. Frogs, an American international picture, in color, rated PG. Frogs, today the pond, tomorrow the world. This portion of the show is being brought to you by Ed's all-new chocolate chip cigarettes. The only cigarettes that give you cavities while you're waiting for the lung cancer to set in. It's time for Mike and the Mechanics. Sorry, sorry. That's Mike and the Mechanics of the game. My bad. Well, this game, Mutant Future, post-apocalyptic science fantasy, will have a few rules that are somewhat familiar to any old schoolers out there. 
Since the game is based on the Labyrinth Lord system, the BX clone from Goblinoid Games, it might be easier just to say what's different than what's similar, but I'll see what I can do. You've got six attributes, strength, intelligence, constitution, dexterity, charisma, and willpower, not wisdom. You roll 3d6 for each though race can change your attribute numbers a bit. And you have certain saving throws, you have hit points, you have combat tables, you have all sorts of this stuff. One of the differences is, much like old uh, Metamorphosis Alpha and Gamma World, hit points are not determined by level, but by your constitution score, with one die for each point of constitution you end up with. And of course, depending on what kind of character you're playing, you get maybe mutations, which has its own system of randomly generating, which is the only real way to do... The way God and Jim Ward intended. <laughs> That's right. In, in a gamma worldy, metamorphosis alpha science fantasy, gonzo-type setting, they're half the fun. So, am I forgetting anything for how the system works? All right, mechanically, it's it's D and D and rolls pretty easy. I think it's easy to yeah. understand, easy yeah. to, to to grasp. OGL D twenty, no shocks in yeah. that department. I feel bad because most of the stuff I wrote is negative. I'm a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> like I think you said, it's it's easier to point out what's different about it than it is what's the same. Which sounds mean now that I'm saying yeah. that. I really don't mean it that way. <laughs> you know, between this and a lot of our other picks between us, Corbett, I'm starting to figure out you and I have different tastes. <laughs> I th- I, or, I, or, or it may just be as simple as I have taste. Oh, oh snap. <laughs> How would? I'm going to pick Dresden Files, too. How do you like that? (laughs) (laughs) Go get them. (laughs) I will say, before we move into the actual top fives, there are five races you can play in this game, which... You know, in character generation, you choose them. Some of the ones mentioned earlier, there are androids, mutant plants, mutant animals. There's a section in the back that allows you to move Labyrinth Lord characters here or vice versa in the great tradition of the 1E DMG. Of course, there's normal humans and one I'm forgetting. Oh yeah, mutant humans, mutant animals. That's it. Humans, mutant humans, mutant animals, mutant plants, and androids. All right. On to top five. The Save for Half Top Five. In five, four, three, two. But before we get really into it, first impressions. And we'll start with Liz, cuz. Ah. <laughs> Android initiative. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Okay. Uh, first impressions. I like the game as a whole, I will say. Uh, one of the things that kind of bugged me a little when reading through it, and this isn't really a game breaker in any way, shape, or form, but it's been created to be compatible with the base game. But I found it personally jarring that so many sections of the rules seemed to be duplicating word for word what you would find in the Labyrinth Lord game rulebook. And it took me out of the mindset of reading about a post-apocalyptic game setting, and it put me right back into, I'm reading a fantasy RPG one. I found that difficult. But 
overall first impression. I think it's a really straightforward way to play the game, and I certainly would not mind playing uh, using these rules. Mm. Corbett? I went into it based on the cover alone. I was like, oh, cool. It's kind of a 1980s Mad Max Let's let's go out in the desert and start smashing stuff up type of post-apocalyptic future. And then I started reading the first few pages of the, like how they kind of came about doing it. And it, it, for some reason, reminded me of when Robbie the robot rides up in uh, Forbidden Planet on his like sled. I don't know if you remember this, but he, he shows up to meet the, uh, the, the astronaut astronauts. teams on the, and he has this sort of weird sort of chariot that he's riding up it's like a hover chariot and he hops out and walks over and i was like wouldn't it be cool if i could play robbie the robot as a cowboy <laughs> and you know in this post-apocalyptic future and that i will have to say is probably what led me to my downfall later but the overall impact of the game definitely has that 80s 50s to 80s it's a weird future kind of world and that's that's what Gonzo. i was going into with it yeah Dude, I think you should write that. If, it, if this wasn't what you wanted, what you what you wanted sounds pretty cool. Oh, and you could have get along little doggies, but they're giant mutant dogs, <laughs> the size of steers. This town is not big enough for the two of us. Oh God! Now you got me thinking about that Battlestar Galactica episode. With, oh, yeah. oh, the cowboy red eye. one eye, red eye, red eye. That was it. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. See, seventies. Post-apocalyptic future uh, past space thing. Yeah. <laughs> Jim. Well, my first impression isn't a first impression. I ran uh, one continuous Gamworld campaign for over 30 years, and we went through all the editions of Gamworld except the White Wolf version and the seventh edition in this campaign. When we ended, I was running it using these rules, mutant future rules, and uh, Gamworld 1E as the setting. Hmm. So uh, I, when you know, back around 2008, 2010, when this came out, I was all in. I got a bunch of the extra monster books and made my own screen and stuff like that. So my first impression was this is just a nice, tight, simple rule set that does exactly what I want it to do. I kind of agree with that. If I were going to run a Gamma Worldy type game, I'd be tempted to use these rules. If for no other reason, then I wouldn't have to explain it, the rule system to my gaming group. Mm. I mean, they all know it. Well, we all love our Metamorphosis Alpha and First Edition and Game World First yeah. Edition, but not the best rules written, not the best writing or organized rule set. Yeah. In organization and presentation, this fixes all that. Yeah, I, I've got some more to say on that later on, but I'm I, I'm saving that for my wow, save. Are, no save. Are we all gonna bash on Jim? <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like we're, no, we're lining not up. Bash with- on Jim. Oh, I got something to say about that later. <laughs> Meet you out back, buddy. <laughs> hey, hey I, I'm a magic user in the post-apocalypse. Three on one. I've Fireball. still got you outnumbered. Bring it on. Fireball. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, start with number five, and we'll start with Liz. Man, I'm going first all over the place. Yeah, you really That's lost your time to start first. This is so unfair. Okay, number five. Well, I'm just going to get right into it. Because it's based on the Labyrinth Lord system, it uses the three-point alignment system of law, neutrality, and chaos. <laughs> Which I guess is all right. <laughs> it's no secret the descriptions of lawful, neutral, and chaotic have always been too absolute for me to ever fully climb on board with. 
I would probably, as usual, import the five-point alignment system from Holmes into the game if I were running it instead of using this. There's no room for maneuvering in the way they describe law, neutrality, and chaos. The way it's described, if you're lawful, you always follow rules and all the laws. Since I, you took one of my top five, I'm, I'm just going to chime in because and amplify your point. And that law, neutrality, and chaos alignment system in this game conflicts directly with the gonzo murder hobo play style presented throughout the rest of the book. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, if well, I ran point. this, I would probably just ignore the alignments. I just kind of took it for granted that, oh, it's just that's the that's the rule for the, the uh, alignment because that's D&D, because that's the standard. So I let it I let it just kind of be. I didn't even think to, to challenge it. Good job, Liz. Be angry. <laughs> I will always challenge the three-point alignment system. <laughs> but I love have a lot of anyway. other dumb stuff to argue about that really has no point, so it's fine. Well, then it's <laughs> yeah, your yeah. five. I'm, I'm going to bring it up right now because Liz already said she's going to bring it up, and if I don't bring it up, she's taking it. So I'm doing this. I cannot play my robot. Technically. Technically. <laughs> I know, and Jim, you can totally back it up and say you can play an Android and just be more robotic. I get it. But it, it the Android is designed to be the... Oh, the the data android. It's designed to be the 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 humanoid looking robot, which the is Crichton. fine. But you can't be yeah, you can't be the very weird probe that went out to Mars and came back and is now intelligent and walking around amongst somebody. You can't do that. It's it's well, you can't without dancing with the DM. And nobody dances with the DM and makes it out alive. So. No, no, it's the <laughs> mutant lord, <laughs> which I first thought was a really pretentious title. Then I realized, no, labyrinth lord. Right. It's this consistency. <laughs> okay. But yeah, you cannot play a robot. You can't play a robot verbatim for for the Robbie the robot. And if you if you're familiar with Lost in Space or um, Forbidden Planet, you're familiar with the big fishbowl headed robot of the time. Yeah. Doesn't hurt my feelings, yeah. but it's kind of irksome for some reason i don't know i'm sure you could easily add it in really really simply and i'm sure liz will have much more to talk about because i know there's a lot of other rules that were just kind of stroked in for the androids i thought was kind of overkill <laughs> yeah i mean that was something that i'd put down in my own notes when i was going through the game that i liked that they included the ability to play an android as a character race i thought it was different uh unique from other post-apoc game systems and i had also gone on to write down, it's like, I would like to take it a step further and also allow players to play robots, which are not necessarily human looking at all the way an android is. Oh. Yeah. So I, I, I totally agree with Corbett on that. <laughs> well, of course, because he stole it from you. <laughs> well, well, no, no, it was it was wrong minds thinking alike. <laughs> oh, Ooh. wow. Somebody's I'm spitting totally... fire already. I am totally initiating self-destruct. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't. <laughs> okay, Jim, what's your five? Other than Liz initiating self-destruct. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> my number five was going to be spider goats, but I'll just move that one on <laughs> and dovetail onto the androids thing. If you're going from a rules construction, rules writing perspective, if you're going to add in a player class or player race, you've got to make it work and balance with all the rest. And that's the challenge with robots, right? Mm. Okay. You know, how? Do, if I get damaged, I just go to the healer and get healed what happens to the robot you know i have to have air food and water what happens to the robot you got to work out workarounds like that and that's why most people avoid it that said i adore what they did with these android rules because they gave you three types basic synthetic and replicant that are all taken from genre fiction 
Mm-hmm. And so they all they all vary in all ways, but they're all human enough that they take damage, they heal the same way, and they get mutations. And I don't know any other game where you can play an android with mutations. That's that's my kind of Gonzo right there, and it works in the context of how it's written. And and, and honestly, that's not to poo-poo your guys' desire to play robots because it's the same thing with the mutant plants. That started way back when mutant plants weren't a part of Gamma World, the original Gamma World, and players always wanted to play them. I hated them. You want to hear something? I hate the idea of mutant plants walking around. But when it came time to write MCC, give the people what they want. So, okay, if I'm going to do this thing I hate, how can I make it something I don't hate? And I wrote rules that are that are fun. And now it's a thing where MCC players go, it's always the plantians. (laughs) So somebody hasn't done that yet with robots that I know of. So maybe you guys could do it. See, Corbett's game will do that. (laughs) I want a cowboy Robbie the robot riding a dinosaur through the desert of a (laughs) nuclear wasteland. I kind of want that too. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't? All right. My number five, I guess, begin at the beginning. I've got to say for this game, It has the most concise but logical description of what is a role-playing game I've seen in any RPG, period. And Mm. I include my own. It's a short section, but he gets right to explaining what an RPG is for anybody picking it up to go, oh, okay, I get it. And I envy that. Congratulations, Mr. Proctor. That was well done. Uh, I know we've talked about this before, but to me, it's kind of gotten to the point now where it almost seems to be an obligatory section in every RPG now, whether or not, arguably, it's no longer as needed as it used to be, but people expect it to be there. And so you got to have it. Whether it's necessary or not, if you don't have it, people notice and they go, but you didn't have it. But this yeah. is a mistake I make all the time because I've been doing this so long, I forget what are the what's the assumed knowledge. Yeah, and I forget that going to be a 12 or a 20-something brand new person pick this up who's never heard of an RPG before. Nods are it's far less likely than it was 20, 30 years ago, but still. Yeah, chances are people are going to have some sort of framework, even if it's just online playing still but i i don't and like by it. online i mean by doing world of warcraft you know computer games yeah. as opposed to getting on roll 20 or whatever yeah. it's a lot more pervasive that's got to be a scary thing thinking about somebody picking up your game for the first time and your game is the impression that they get for all role-playing games mm-hmm. it's like when a 30 something in your group goes what was tsr and you're just like what how do you not know that mm-hmm. okay well uh Mike's yeah. exactly right. Don Proctor gives it to you chapter and verse here. The dice notations, here's the abbreviations. But he doesn't waste time on it or waste excessive page count on it either. So I, I salute that. All right, Liz, four. I absolutely adore the typeface choices. Again, because I love my Holmes Basic and it harkens back to the appearance of both the Holmes Basic rulebook and the 1E AD&D books. Also, the table of contents is very cleanly laid out. The information is intuitively structured. I really enjoyed how everything was put together in this booklet. You didn't have any weird choices like, oh, all the combat rules are supposed to be in chapter three, but we're going to refer you to chapter eight for a big part of it instead of having it all together in chapter three. You know, everything that should be together is together in these rules. That helps a lot with reading and comprehension and just getting out to play as soon as possible. Corbett? Overall, 
it's a retro clone, more or less. And mm. it, well, it is, basically. It's a retro clone of D&D. You play D&D, you play it. A bit of a complaint, and it's a problem that D&D had uh, well, a long way back, where they'll have a chart for a chart within a chart. Specifically, the one that <laughs> caught my attention was uh, the condition grade of a piece of technology you find is zero to five. So for zero being terrible, five being perfect, pristine condition. To get that, you have roll it up on a percentage base. So you roll a percentage dice to get a number to tell you what the value is of the thing. Couldn't you just roll a percentage dice and say one is good, double zeros is bad, somewhere in there is the grade, and move on along? Seems kind of silly to have a number to evaluate another number for no particular reason. Yes, but I think you're also letting your significant experience in RPGs get and and that's easy for in a way like Jim was saying it's easy for all of us to do you know can you do that sure but the tables might be there for people who have never done science fantasy before yeah well or they could have just used a 1 to 6 and 1 being great and 6 being terrible and uh it's it just seems kind of a frustration and this is kind, I understand this from people who complain about Thaco you know, mm-hmm. they, oh, the the D the the D twenty. You can see the number right on the page. Well, there's kind of a arc to the whole thing, and that's why there's a Thaco. And like, well, but it's a chart within a chart. And I see that point. It's just the when I hit that, I totally love the idea of having technological technological levels, finding artifacts, and figuring out if you can make them work or not. A lot of fun to the game. That was pretty much the the big key for Gamma World. I just thought like, huh, it's funny that there's a chart to lead you to a number which is just as equal to the percentage. So huh? minor, kind of a kind of an earmark of the, the retro clone kind of classic systems. The use of various different types of dice. Eh. <laughs> I know it's fun. There's a reason okay. why we have 4,000 dice. <laughs> <laughs> Quite true. Okay, Jim. I'm glad we're all friends and we all love each other and we know it because I'm just doing away with my top five list and gainsaying everything Corbett says. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Corbett, I know. you ignorant giant Point guy. and <laughs> counterpoint. Jane, you ignorant slut. No, I, I know I, I know what you mean, and you're right. It's very in the retro clone favor, but and and normally it wouldn't matter. But it's an important distinction for this game. It's like, is Dungeon Crawl Classics a retro clone? No, because it's not emulating a past edition. So for this to be for Mutant Future to be a retro clone, it would be emulating something you could point to like Gamma World. Instead, it's an OGL D20 thing because there's not a a, a drop of Gamma World IP in this because they didn't get that license and couldn't. And there's no OGL for Gamma World IP. So it's it's a, OG, a D20 OGL book based on, you know, Wizards of the Coast, Dungeons and Dragons, blah, 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 blah. That said, Spider Goats, man. <laughs> Kudos, because I think this might be the first game, and viewers, please email us if I'm wrong, that, that Spider Goats appear in. And because they appear as OGL content in this game, everybody, including me, I, I stuck spider goats. I called them something different, but they're in MCC. And I don't know what it is that unnerves people about goats with eight spider legs that shoot uh, silk, but it just spooks players like nothing else. And I think maybe this is the first game because 2008, 2010 is about the time the geneticists made real spider goats. The ones whose they put a spider gene in a goat and now its milk has spider silk in it. <laughs> In real life. I've got to say, I see spider goats, and the first thing I think of are the bugs from the Oh My Goddess anime 
Oh, right, right. The bugs in the system. Yeah, the bugs in the system in Yggdrasil, because they have the rabbit faces, Ooh, but they but they the bunny faces and then the spider bodies and all the legs and they you know jump all over the place. It's like I see spider goats and that's the first place my mind goes. <laughs> Besides, everyone gets a drumstick. <laughs> well done, Liz. You just got me to confess on air that I watched Oh My Goddess. Yay! <laughs> that's my number five or no, number okay. four. It was an awesome, it's an awesome okay. show. Okay, my number four, and this kind of plays into what Liz was saying about getting taken out of. The mindset of science fantasy into just plain old fantasy. I really don't like how it uses gold pieces, silver pieces, copper uh, pieces. You taking that, one of mine? <laughs> I mean, I understand. I mean, and they do say in there, you know, a lot of transfers of things are going to be by barter. In the last paragraph. And, <laughs> and I... Aftermath was a perfect example of a game that, you know, you got to, they came up with just barter units, which still wasn't great, but I think still at least keeps one a little more in the mindset than gold, silver, and copper. Yeah, I mean, I understand what they're saying, and again, they're trying to be compatible with Labyrinth Lord, but it just, it messes me up. Yeah. You know what else they did? Mm. They used the word milieu Ooh. Mm. they I used it that. twice as a matter of fact well i forgive them then <laughs> but that, no you, that's a fair point mike you know that's that breaks the setting a little i did some price comparison on a lot of their stuff because it does not barter well <laughs> all right goldfinger lay it on us no no just like <laughs> the one thing that stood out to me because i had to go buy a ladder recently i don't know if you've ever bought a ladder they are expensive they're like two, 200 bucks casually for a good ladder. They, they are pretty expensive. The ladder in the game, five copper. It's a crappy ladder. Yeah, it's not a good ladder. Go, go look up how much a wooden ladder costs and tell me if you can <laughs> get it for five copper. Five oh ounces of copper. How about that? How about five pounds of copper? <laughs> oh, dude, I can see you at the Lowe's now with a rule book in one hand and five pennies in the other. <laughs> I'm sorry, oh my gosh. but it's like, dude. Yeah, we've, we've got a little six-foot ladder, which is practically useless for most anything you want because you always need at least eight or ten feet to yeah, get anywhere. Yeah, but that's the only one we have because that's the only one that didn't cost some astronomical amount of money. So <laughs> no, you should tell them it's only five copper. It's what it says right there. I should. I should. <laughs> and wine is only two gold, which by the ounce equivalent is roughly $2,000. <laughs> well, that, you see, the wine comes from spider goats. <laughs> <laughs> Fermented spider goat silk, see? Hey, you don't have to age the ladders in uh, <laughs> lizard bird bladders. Okay. All right, Liz, three. I really enjoyed the fact that this is a game which has food vendors. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Well, food for trucks. one thing, yeah, I, I immediately think of food trucks. and But I like it. I really do. Also, tip of the hat to Mr. Proctor or whoever it was who decided to mention rat on a stick <laughs> as one of the things you can buy from the food vendors. Maybe Brian Dennison, but yeah. It's That's like, a Judges Guild callback. Yes. It's like, oh my God, rat on a stick. That is awesome. So there, there's, there's quite a few little Easter eggs like that peppered throughout the rules. They're very fun when you find them. So I did like that rather lighthearted approach 
to writing this. Well, I just expect a supplement on how to start your own round on a stick franchise <laughs> in, in Mutant Future. That's that's what I'm waiting for. All right, Corbett, three. Let's see, what will upset Jim the most? <laughs> <laughs> no. no, honestly, it's all pretty, it's like my piddly bits about money uh, like eh, it's it's something to pick at that language mike stole yeah uh, mike stole i can't believe mike mike got all picky <laughs> about money but no it is progressively utopian in, in the same way that idiocracy idiocracy <laughs> has has actually a better future somebody pointed this out that there's a there's a woman on the the president's cabinet and nobody ever points it out she's just doing her job i mean She's an idiot like everybody, but they're all the same, so it's fine. <laughs> but in this, it's language. Language, everybody's supposed to be speaking the same language. Now, I get that it's the purpose is for narration. It moves forward and, and easy. But in the current world, everybody doesn't speak the same language. So it's kind of nice to think that in the future, we all speak the same language to some level. <laughs> yeah, and one can't but think of, I hate to bring actual history in on this. But... Oh, you and your historian. Yeah, it only took a few hundred years for Latin in the collapsed Western Roman Empire to evolve into French, Spanish, Italian, and other Romance languages. All the languages English mugged and took their art from. Yep. <laughs> yep. Anyway. All right, Jim, three. Oh, I'm sorry. I was unprepared. <laughs> didn't you skip just... Oh, no, that was Corbett. Never yeah. mind. I'm lost. <laughs> sorry, I didn't say something... Uh, Divisive enough for you to jump on. <laughs> I, I know, I know, right? I just rolled a one. Uh, I'm going to dovetail off Liz as part of a larger thing. The completeness of these rules and that they only clock in at around 150 pages. And also what you said at the very beginning, Mike, is is the thing that makes this such a well-written, well-organized rule set. Besides all the stuff we've talked about, it's, it's not just the food vendors. There's a whole section for how to build your campaign. It's it's that old school do-it-yourself of we're not going to give we're going to give you a suggestion of a setting and then the rules to build your own. So you can build your own villages, build your own ruins for adventures. And I just love the section where, okay, what what happens in every D&D game, the players come out of the dungeon loaded and now they need a town adventure to spend all their stuff. So in this game, there's a blacksmith. Or get mugged in. Yeah, yeah. Water vendors, junk merchants, all that stuff is, is in there with little rule sets and just the cohesiveness and completeness of the rules. And they give you a section saying, OK, not just how to how do you role play like in the front of the book and in the middle of the book. It's how do you build your own campaign? Yeah. Bravo to Dan Proctor <laughs> and Ryan Dennison, who co-wrote this. Okay. And you were talking about the pages. I think the PDF was like at 161, but 61 pages are the monsters and the mutations. So once you like ignore that part, you've really only got a, less than 100 pages of rules. That is kind of the heart of the game, though. I mean, you want to have mutations. That's like saying there's not a well, magic yeah, section in Yeah, but I mean, D&D. you know, it's like spell lists in <laughs> yeah. fantasy RPGs. You know, they're necessary, sure, but they take up a lot of room. And they're not something you read cover to cover. They're stuff you read by reference. Yeah. Yeah, technically, they aren't part of the mechanics. Right. But speaking of mutations, my number three is I like the brevity of the mutations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't go into paragraph after paragraph of trying to define them and really get granular about how they think. It's just a general description and a couple of suggested effects. And then he backs off and lets the mutant lord handle it from there. And I really like that. That does my rules light heart proud. 
Corbett was talking before we went on air about how I swing hard either way. And this is, but this is where it benefits me because I, I like both ways. I mean, I wrote a game where an inch of the, of the rule book is the mutations because every mutation is a page with all the mutation check results. I obviously like that because I, I wrote it and I play it all the time, but I can go hard the other way. And I really like what you're talking about, Mike. Bam, 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 bam. And there's not a, like a copious amount of mutations either. There's Jim what? is by rulesian <laughs> <laughs> Well, both ways are fun. <laughs> Rules curious. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, Liz, number two. Number two. Alrighty. This is nothing to do with how the rules go, but... Again, this is something that you almost always see in a fantasy RPG game, and you have it here too, a whole section on adventures at sea. (laughs) I personally hate adventures at sea. It's like every every time I see a section in an RPG about adventures at sea, I just like, I mean, this is not the fault of the game, to be (laughs) sure. I just personally have zero interest in water-based adventures and sea travel. Jim will have words with you later. (laughs) No, no, unless you want to go hard that way. And okay, we're doing Waterworld. That's Uh, the campaign. No, I I, I don't want to do Waterworld. Right. (laughs) I mean, this is great for people who want it. People who like being, you know, pirates doing whatever. You're going to love this. It's great. But for me, it's like, eh, ventures at sea. Get rid of that. (laughs) Hey, now, that's my my second master's degree was in that. <laughs> and it would never be mine because boring. Boring. Okay. One star. Do not recommend. <laughs> I, I don't know if, I don't understand if you're kidding or not. Did you do a master's degree in water-based campaign rules? <laughs> yes. Yes, Did you I not did. hear his argument about Chase's skyscraper of a of a boat that they had to go through? No, no, it wasn't no, Chase's. It was a guy at North Texas who was running oh, a, I'm a sorry, nautical Chase. game. I mean, this makes your frustration with how Chase ran that ocean campaign all the funnier. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah that's you're sitting you're there with a master's of, degree and you can't steer the ship because you didn't take the skill for sextant or something, right? Oh, no, we had the skill navigation. He just said we didn't actually purchase a sextant. And we did not notice... Especially the person who had the navigation skill was apparently totally unaware that the ship did not have a sextant needed for navigation. It's like, well, we didn't buy hammocks either, but... Yeah, it's like the person who knew all about navigation would have realized that he or she did not have the tools needed to navigate with. And he was the captain of the ship. Maybe they weren't worried about it because they knew Mike had the master's degree. (laughs) I think it's fair to say the stewards do not appreciate sea adventures. (laughs) Oh, I mean... <laughs> I, I'm with you. I, I don't either because nothing good ever comes of an ocean adventure. Never. Well, in some ways, I really like them because they're almost like the Star Trek planet to planet, but you can go yeah. island to island, which is fun. But when you come up with stupid, lame ass ideas to try to <laughs> rationalize us getting lost rather than just saying there was a horrible storm and we were lost, then it bugs me a little. <laughs> I chase. Water so. adventures just bore the crap out of me. That's Corbett. that's just me. Two. Two. Actually, I do have one one good thing I, I really enjoyed in this game because that's something that they kept true. One. To the, one thing. He one really thing. Enjoyed. Oh, that's it's a fun game. But one thing that I thought like it captured what my initial kind of roll into it was was that sort of classic 
feel of the the sort of bizarre future that that the 1950s on set up in our, in my head a good ex- specifically the creatures but more specifically ape men which i mean they obviously planet of the apes put that right into play like the ant horror uh, they talked about the morlocks at one point um just all the the old classic like this is what the future is going to be they threw in some of the D stuff and you know no like, okay <laughs> overall it has a lot of stuff that that reminded me of that oh yeah the future is gonna be crazy because yeah. after after the 80s the future became this very miserable miserable like future cyberpunk <laughs> yeah and not that not that the future's not scary because of the the wars or whatever. It, it, in the past, the future was much brighter. If that sounds right, <laughs> as opposed to you have Blade Runner instead of Zardoz. Yes, thank C. C. you, CC Corbett. We can be on the same page because I'm a big fan of the sunnier apocalypse. Right, apocalypse. Some people aren't. If you want to play dystopian, you know, the sky is matrix overcast all the time and everybody has to wear gas masks. If that's your jam, Godspeed to you. But I like a nice sunny apocalypse where you can have adventures in it. That's that's the Roddenberry working in you because he was the one who's always like, yeah, there's a terrible, terrible apocalypse. And then it became awesome. Spaceships away. (laughs) Okay, that was okay. But yeah, the the, the ape man specifically jumped to mind. Jim, too. Which is really funny because uh, Goblinoid Games later come out with Apes Victorious, so you know you can double lean into the Planet of the Apes stuff. There, there you go. <laughs> come to the sunnier apocalypse; it's more fun. <laughs> Meet new and interesting mutants and kill them. So my number two is deep cut into this game system. I really like the way Proctor and Dennison wrote this hybrid XP system because it's he explains in the front of the book that you're going to see some new rules and some old rules, all in the old school style. To, to new players when this came out. And that hybrid XP system is one of those things because in old school Metamorphosis Alpha and Gamma world, you were born with as many hit points as you're ever going to have, right? There's no there's no level progression or experience point system at all. He put one into this, but since all the races are race as class, there's no there's level progression in the classes, but what you get is this random table. At, at, the, at the level XP breaks, you roll for what changes in your character and it's totally random so it could be a plus one to your attack bonus a plus one to your damage bonus or plus one to one of your abilities which can pile up after a few levels in some lucky rolls you know that'll if your constitution score goes up enough that'll change your hit points and that was just a chef's kiss solution i thought and again yeah the whole randomness is very old school all right my number two the sample adventure in the back the mine of the brain lashers who are not any type of old-school fantasy monster, because they're... Certainly not something they could be sued over. Yes, because they're brain lashers. They're not any flares of minds of any any sort. Yeah. You say that like we haven't all done it. (laughs) (laughs) But what I liked about it, I mean, every, just, or most, especially current RPGs, always have a self-sample adventure of some kind. That's just a stock. What I like about this one is that Procter and Dennison took the opportunity to first create it using its random table generation system to create a quote-unquote mm-hmm. random dungeon and then statted it out to make the quote-unquote sample adventure. That was a really nifty idea. 
And even better than that, it showed certain things to where they said, well, you've rolled this, but it doesn't make sense in this room, so we'll skip that and instead have it empty or something like that, you know? They're also showing you can use the tables to generate, but don't be slaves to them. And I thought that was an excellent, excellent idea. Wouldn't it be cool if it turned out Dan Proctor was also some kind of history professor? <laughs> that would be cool. Because you're kind of talking about, okay, they don't just tell you, they teach you. Yeah, they show. And that is an excellent, excellent way of handling this. So, all right, Liz, take us home. Number one. Okie dokie. My number one. Kind of jumping off from what Corbett was talking about earlier. You know, he mentions you know the monster section. They've got the Eloy, the Morlocks from Wells's Time Machine novel. One of the things that jumped out at me as I was looking... Hat tip again for the reference to Cyborg Commando. Oh. Oh, I missed that. That's one of the monsters <laughs> that you can encounter, a Cyborg Commando. <laughs> um, they also had, from the movie Matinee, Mant! Mant! So, again, all kinds of just fun little Easter eggs and... Just neat things just stuck in there here and there for, for you to pick up on as you're reading. But again, you've got your standard entries for the black pudding, green slime, rot mm. grubs. Takes me out of the post-apoc mindset, throws me right back into fantasy RPG mindset. I personally would have kept those out. I think you have plenty enough that you have a good selection and you still get maintain the feel for what you're trying to do here. I, I can Corbett, agree on that. What would you like to bash of Jim's now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually getting pretty low on stuff. You guys are actually picking a lot of things uh -oh. I picked. So, But I, I will say, the more I think about it, because it does pull me out a little bit too when I'm reading, well, it pulls me out a lot when I, when I read through the, um, the fantasy stuff. But at the same time, I can see... Like when, when Jim was talking about the first time he ran a superhero game and people are playing D&D &D anyway, so super they just dwarf, make super, super dwarf elf. and super elf and magic user. <laughs> super wizard. Yeah. Basically. And like it, it gives them an easy like, hey, just give me your hand and we're going to go do this game together, buddy. Let's go do it. And I could see that as a good thing, but I, I can't see how for us, because we were so familiar with it, it's a kind of a tug i also think that sort of thing works better in a superhero game well maybe yeah yeah because superhero covers pretty much everything you can travel through time that's for sure well that that's exactly right you it's, you can do any genre in a superhero context but and always in small doses not the whole table showing up with their D, &D characters in spandex yeah yeah, yeah that's... okay but my number one mutations drawbacks abnormal appearance question mark <laughs> isn't, isn't, isn't everything actually this is the part i got confused about isn't everything going to make you abnormal but by proxy isn't everybody abnormal meaning that anybody who's normal looks abnormal so i'm very confused i understand their purpose <laughs> of putting that in there but i feel like that was a filler <laughs> ah you're a mutant I have totally animal. normal i have totally normal wings now totally normal <laughs> totally normal you're a mutant animal but you look like a mutant plant. Yep. That guy has a chicken beak. I have antennae. He has claws. But we're pretty much normal. That guy's got a mustache. Weird. What was the little, what was the little kid's name in The Incredibles? The little speedster kid. 
Jack, Jack, Dash. Dash, yeah, yeah. You sound like Dash bitching to his mom. He's like, yeah, I get it. Everybody's special, which means no one is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just confusing because it's an actual drawback is to look abnormal. But everything you get in the mutations pretty much is guaranteed you're going to look abnormal. However, everybody is abnormal. So does that mean you look normal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be hard to explain. Ooh, yeah. ooh, you can have an android with abnormal appearance. And you look like a robot. <laughs> what's what's wrong go. with that there abnormal guy? Oh, he just looks like David Hasselhoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you could be an android and you look like Kit. See? Mm-hmm. Ooh. There you go. There you go. I want to play Kit. <laughs> of course you do. That's not advisable, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jim, what's your number one? I have the best memory. Every reference you guys are making, like you said, Cylons, I heard the <laughs> back and forth. I just heard Kit's little thing. My, I, my number one that I saved for last that nobody got to thank you guys is the uh, la- last section of the book called Mutants and Mazes. That's just the biggest put on your shocked faces, but it's all about how to genre mash Mutant Future and Labyrinth Lord together. Right. I, why would Jim like that? Can't imagine. <laughs> Whereas, you know, you had like a column of six point type in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Even in Newton Crawl Classics, I think I gave about two pages of rules. This is eight glorious pages consistent with the rest of the rules of here's exactly what you need to know and here's exactly what you need to do. Here's the spell list and how, how it works in Mutant Future. Here's what mutations do. Here's what radiation does. Re- eight pages of rules on how to crunch the two together. I mean, okay, from a business standpoint, that just made sense because that was they're the two lead products at the time but for a gamer that's what that's my jam yeah i mean skeeter i I just retired a wizard to npc status in skeeter green's dcc slash mcc campaign where it's some time lost uh dcc characters get thrown into his post-apocalypse the party's a blend of both back and forth and it's my favorite way to game in the whole world dwarf with the mutation gigantism. Well, it's kind of the flip side of Liz's point, which is equally valid, where Liz is like, okay, it takes me out of the game when I see a green slime or black pudding in a post-apocalypse. In in Skeeter's blended world, the, the, t- the drama and tension is heightened because we never knew what the crap was coming around the corner next. Everything was on the table. So mutants and mazes. Yay! <laughs> okay. My number one. Replicants. Really? <laughs> Really, for doing Blade Runner, I did not like replicants. Blade Runner is not a post-apoc. It is dystopian. So they just didn't seem to really fit. And the whole, well, but they only live five years. And it's like, okay, how many people actually end up playing campaigns that are going to last five years of game time? Yeah. Not very many. So it's it strikes me as kind of one of those things like level limits. Well, they can't go higher than 10th level. Well, you know, we tend to cut off around 9th or 10th level anyway, so so what? They only live to be 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> There's a ghost, put the elf in front. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I just did not like the replicants. That seemed to me kind of a cop-out. It's like, well, they're a robot, they're an android, but they're also an organic being. Well, see, a lot of but... things I was imagining in my head was, like, stuff coming back to Earth that we had sent out, and the replicants from Blade Runner were used to mine. And presuming the dystopian world collapsed and then became a post-apoc, and then the replicants came back. But how many centuries did it take them to get back? Well, I don't yeah, know. If there are replicants running around the post-apocalypse, there's a replicant factory still running somewhere. Well, yeah, because yeah, we got to send mean, them out to the asteroid field or whatever. 
there's probably still a tennis shoe factory that somebody's living by with brand new sneakers. I think we learned this from past <laughs> yeah, games. He's, he's, I've so. seen D6 initiative and descending armor class and things you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Yes. That was my thing about the probe, the robots, was like, oh yeah, yeah like a returning V'ger type situation where, oh, I've learned all these things, but now the Earth is not what I knew, that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, but while yours is, is inclusive, mine is exclusive, and much like rot grubs, etc., replicants make me think more either cyberpunk or traveler. It doesn't make me think post-apoc. Well, I guess that's you're unique cop. like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's my one, and I'm sticking to it. Now let's talk about what makes the save and what takes half. What makes the save and what is going to take half? Saving throws, which are almost similar to each other in both Labyrinth Lord and in future, just with a couple of minor changes. But we'll start with, this time, Jim. What makes the save? Uh, for me, that's just a concise, solid rule set. Everything you need and nothing you don't, except maybe replicants <laughs> and, green, and green slimes. <laughs> so, I mean, just this rule set could have been a master's thesis itself, and you, you would have been able to defend it easily. What doesn't make the save is the uh, layout is very clean and tight, Holmesian, as, as Liz pointed out, but the art is completely lacking and in some places really just terrible. Even by 10, 12 years ago, OSR nostalgia standard. I just wish they'd, they'd sunk more money into the art. I look at it now and I'm just like, oh, well, I'm glad my stuff looks better than this. <laughs> okay. Well, Corbett? Um, overall, I, I agree. The, the rules are straightforward, really easy to understand, easy to interpret to anybody else, and easy to work with. And the drawback is that because it's so familiar, I think those stark tugs that, that Liz was pointing out are really the, doesn't make the save point for me, that it is a bit jarring to suddenly go, there's a black pudding and there's a green slime. It's not horrible. And I, I see their point for doing a lot of the things they did. Even even lacking robots, I understand. Because <laughs> robots <laughs> are complicated. I get it. The fact that they have as many varieties of of species and types they could have just as easily gone here's a bunch of mutations figure it out well to be clear they have lots of robots just you not just can't play their character ones yeah those expansions are for mm -hmm. but um yeah that's makes the save doesn't make the save it's good rules that okay. are a bit too tuggy is that a word okay. tuggy tuggy <laughs> it is now yeah. all right liz uh, my makes the save is exactly the same thing the compatibility with labyrinth lord makes for a more straightforward read, quicker overall comprehension of the rules. I figure even if you never, ever plan on marrying the two systems for a gonzo fantasy post-apoc mashup, it makes for easier gameplay all around because of the familiarity. And again, I really enjoyed the nods throughout the rules to other books, other movies, etc., just sprinkled throughout. They were fun, and yet they did not detract from the rules as a whole in any way. Ah, uh, what doesn't make the save? The monster in the monsters section, uh, the specifically the narcolep. You can find that on page 85 of the rules, 88 of the PDF. I found that very disturbing for myself. Basically, they're humanoids. They hypnotize creatures 
specifically to kidnap women, take them away, and impregnate them. And mm. when the women then give birth, they take the babies, which always are, no matter what kind of species the woman impregnated is, the baby is always another narcolep. Jesus, you're right. That's not cool. Is it because I'm a woman? Maybe. I would like to think anyone who really thought about it would also find it disturbing. I understand that the trope of alien impregnation, whatever, in various forms exists in the genre. But I don't care. I don't like it. I feel that this is basically rape being quantified into a standard monster attack. You've got manipulation, lack of consent, physical and mental violation, and just women as victims in general. And it just troubles me that this creature is even there. And that is what does not make the save for me. Mm. Okay. I'm with you. I mean, you know, uh, Game of Thrones is full of rape and incest. That doesn't mean I want it in a game I'm playing. Yeah. Okay. Well, mine, like Liz was saying, uh, makes a save. The compatibility with BX, the ease of getting people immediately into play. You know, the, the mutants and mazes to just get it all there and ready to go. Doesn't make the save. The mutants and mazes section. <laughs> that was the very thing Jim liked. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, you remember when he was saying that? I was kind of going. <laughs> See, this, is, this, this is this is quality episode happening episode because we are both informing and entertaining. No yeah. one will make it out of Thunderdome alive. <laughs> My problem isn't with the idea behind it. I think it is needlessly complicated. I think he goes too granular on. Which was the thing Jim liked, eight pages. I didn't think it needed to go this much. I didn't think he needed to change the rules of Mutant Future too much, especially involving hit points and levels. It's not necessary. Just have your mutants. They have their hit points when they arrive. They just don't get any more if they increase in level. They come front-loaded. That's just the way it works. You know, why do you need these? Well, no, now they need to reduce. And now mutant powers can only, you know, will work level-based, sort of like magic spells and stuff. I just, I mean, I don't hate the ideas necessarily. It just seems needlessly complex. Well, I, I actually agree with you in that I would never run it the way it's written in that section myself, right? Which is essentially what you're saying. Why, why yeah, go to all that why bother? Put a, why, yeah, why, why is that? Why are you making this more difficult than it needs to be? Or you could just be trying to get Jim's spider goat. <laughs> <laughs> all eight legs. Wait, wait, wait. I have the screaming goat right here. <laughs> <laughs> Granny, spider goat's in the house again. <laughs> Give me that stick. <laughs> whack, whack, whack. Spider goat, spider. Goat. <laughs> <laughs> Can do anything that Jim wrote. Oh, Corbett's boy. going to rope a goat. <laughs> Only if it's a spider goat. Da da. Here comes a spider goat. All right, guys. Well, that was Mutant Future. Illinois <laughs> <Golanoid> Games. <laughs> Bill Proctor. You know what? It's still better than Time Ship. <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> Mutant Future contains mutants and a future. <laughs> And Unlike timeship, which is true, has no timeships in it, and is cheaper because you can get a no art version of this on the Goblinoid Games website, goblinoidgames.com, for free. No art, or you can get an art version off Drive Through RPG. We'll have links in the show notes. Wow, and POD, so you could still get a hardback version of this if you wanted. Indeed. Free? That's cheaper than a ladder. Indeed, <laughs> slightly, slightly <laughs> cheaper than you, a ladder. You can start playing immediately. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you get a ladder, but you have gigantism. So do you have to like buy a giant ladder or well, as long as you look yeah. normal? Well, if you just needed a little step ladder. Well, that's true. It'd be a step ladder for it'd be a step stool for the guy with gigantism. I want a ladder that works like the ranger staffs in Babylon Five. No, oh, those you know, are cool. Okay, it's only three feet long until I twist it, and then it shoots up whatever I need. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! All right. Well, say good night, everybody. Good night. See ya. Good night. <laughs> Free arc future, and we're off. I don't think anyone got mutated. I don't think. The Save for Half Podcast is a production of the Mud Puppy Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and 